DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I have been looking forward to doing this show for uh, quite some time. I am Bill Nygut. Um My guest today is uh, biographer Stacy Schiff, whose uh, brand new book is The Revolutionary Samuel Adams. And we'll talk to her in just a minute, but let me first give you a more formal introduction. Um, Stacy Schiff uh, won the Pulitzer Prize for, I think, uh, your biography. Stacy of uh, Vera Nabokov, the wife of uh, the uh, uh, writer uh, Vladimir Nabokov. You wrote a biography of Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, of Cleopatra, um, Benjamin Franklin, uh, which um, I, am, I am told is about to be turned into an Apple Plus uh, TV show with Michael Douglas playing uh, the lead Role. And I think it's also the first time that Samuel Adams made a brief appearance in um, one of your uh, books. Stacey Schiff's books are always greeted with great enthusiasm and acclaim. The New York Times, in writing the review of this one, says any book from the Pulitzer Prize winning Schiff is reason for excitement. And I understand that. I can't tell you how much I love this book, not only because of all the surprises about Samuel Adams, who we've known very little about as a leader of the American Revolution, um, but also because, as always, uh, her writing is exquisite. So, Stacey Schiff, thank you so much uh, for being here for Political Rewind today. It's really a thrill to have you here. I couldn't be more delighted to join you, Bill, and thank you for the lovely introduction. Um, so let's start with the fact that Samuel Adams, in many ways, has been lost in the midst of history. And we'll, as we move on, talk about why that's happened. Um, but especially before the Revolutionary War, he was in many ways considered the most important force in rallying Americans, the colonists, uh, to want to push for their independence. Thomas Jefferson said that if there was any leader of the revolution, Samuel Adams was the man. His cousin, second cousin, I think, uh, John Adams, thought him to be the most sagacious of politicians. Um, and yet, until your biography, we've known very little about Samuel Adams. Um, so uh, let's talk about him in the context of where he came from and when he became uh, such an important force in the revolution. You point out to us the early years of his life, he was pretty much of a failure. Yeah, I don't know why, but I find that highly endearing, that here is a young man from an affluent family. He grows up in a very beautiful house overlooking Boston Harbor and earns not one but two degrees at Harvard, and then pretty much um, squanders the next couple of years. He's really kind of unable to hold a job. And from the few details we have, the reason for that seems to be that he is utterly obsessed with politics and with ideas. Um, we know that he very briefly holds, in, holds down a job in a, an accounting firm, a job for which his father probably arranged. And the head of the firm was a very popular Bostonian 
essentially says he's a very capable young man, but his, but his mind was not on his ledgers. His mind was on ideas and, and promptly fires him. So for those first, um, for that first real decade or so after, um, after he graduates, he's pretty aimless and he really doesn't come to prominence until the Sugar and Stamp Acts in the early 1760s. You um, uh, uh, quote uh, 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 someone from that time period as saying, and, and you'll fill out the quote for me, he read for the ministry, uh, for, he read theology but did not become a minister, he read for the law but did not become a lawyer, and there's one more to that series, I don't happen to recall it off the top of my head. Yeah, I, I feel like that's the, the great thundercloud of a sentence, which is said, Samuel Adams' is early years all tied up together, basically a failure on every front. He, he's briefly a, uh, a Boston tax collector, fails at that too, runs up a tremendous debt, opens a business, fails at that inherits a bit of money from his father, squanders that. But for all of these things is, as we know from, from his later activities, quite beloved for Bostonians. And, and you know, some of the tax, some of the, the failed tax collecting may have contributed to that. There's nothing like an indulgent tax collector to be a popular tax collector. He was given that job uh, by the Crown. And of course, what uh, people may not realize is that he was not only was he responsible for collecting taxes, but he was responsible for the debt uh, in any taxes he didn't collect, which just uh, made his life even more difficult. Right? It was a very strange system. It was the, it, it was a job no one wanted, and in fact, people often paid the fine rather than serve as tax collector because it was such an unpopular position. And he probably does take it at that point. He has two small children, and he and he does desperately need some source of revenue. And the way it worked was that you collect, you got a premium on the monies you collected. So you made a little bit of money. But yes, indeed, if you'd failed to collect the monies that were due, you were responsible for those debts. And he runs up a spectacular sum. I mean, it's easily twice as much as the next most delinquent collector. And for much of these next years, when in fact British taxation is much in question, he is defending himself. He's begging the town um, to grant him extension after extension to make good on his debt to the town, which, in fact, he never repays. Yeah. So I'd love to put this his life in Boston in the context of what was happening in Boston in the 1740s, 50s, 60s. Uh, and I think, as I read your book, one of the questions I had was, what the heck was in the drinking water in Boston, Stacy, there were no other colonies at that point that were as active and energized in fighting uh, the way in which the British uh, were dominating uh, life as Boston. And in your book, it seems like every week there's some group that gathers to have a protest about something or other that's happening with the British. It really was the center of revolutionary fervor. It, oh, those hot-headed New Englanders is what you're trying to say, right? Um, yes, yeah. and it becomes it becomes really an issue. Um, I'll answer your question in a sec. It, it becomes an issue as the New Englanders travel to the First Continental Congress, and they're warned increasingly as they head through the Middle Atlantic states of the fact that they have this reputation as being basically hot-headed fanatics. I, you know, you could write it down. It's been written down to any number of things. Obviously, Puritanism plays a role here. There is a sense that if a church can exist without a bishop, then a government can exist without a king. I mean, there's clearly, especially in Adams's work, um, a great deal of piety shining through. It, I, it's a sort of a watermark on everything he writes. And there's some, and there's some of that in this sort of steely, independent New England spirit. Um, the Harvard College Library has been blamed for much of this. These are, very, these are people who are steeped these years in John Locke. 
and we'll soon be reading Rousseau and Hume, and those are um, certainly thinkers who lead them down the road where they're headed. Boston was a town of five newspapers, six newspapers for some of this period, which had something to do with it as well. And those are newspapers, in particular, the Boston Gazette, which are really widely read. Um, and it's a very literate population in New England because, of course, in order to pray, you needed to read. So this is so reading has always been at a very high level. And perhaps most importantly, um, and this is true, obviously, in Adams's case, too, you have a colony in some, in some economic distress. Boston's economy has faltered. The wars have taken a great toll. The shipbuilding industries have decamped to, you know, to New York and to Philadelphia. There have been smallpox epidemics. There has been fire. There have been kind of like a series of what feel like almost plagues. And the city feels, the town feels unsettled for all of that. It feels very precarious for all of those economic um, blows that it has suffered. So um, his early life, he never made a success of himself. He was, I think you tell us, about 40, 41 years old when he uh, started really thinking about uh, his, uh, where he started becoming active in fighting the British, uh, uh, just with, with rhetoric, uh, uh, certainly for a time, for for a period of time, and as you say, there were one of the reasons for this was uh, the British had fought the French and Indian War, and had spent a fortune and gone deeply in debt uh, to protect the American colonists. Was their uh, perspective on this, and so they needed to find some way to renew their treasuries. And they passed, as I think most of us who've read American history know, a series of tax acts that escalated uh, and became more and more oppressive to the Americans, and especially uh, in Boston. Uh, the Sugar Act came first, right? That's right. Sugar Act, but the Sugar Act arrives with a, with a very strong hint that it is the first of what are going to be a series of acts. So, mm -hmm. so the Sugar Act arrives with the news of the Stamp Act trailing, trailing close behind. Oh. And, and really, this is an attempt. Uh, reports that the colonies are flourishing have been reaching London. Um, indeed, it has been very expensive to defend and then to administer the colony. So there is a sense here of, um, well, if we're spending this much money to uh, defend and to, to protect these people, um, to fight their wars, then really we should be reaping some kind of benefits. But in addition to that, in addition to the just let's, let's help fill the, the treasury, um, there is this sense that the colonial relationship needs to be defined. And I think that's one of the things that struck me as I was working on the book was how ill-defined, how very vague um, was the relationship at this point. For many years, really, all that Adams and most of his friends are hoping for is some kind of redress, some kind of return to an earlier standing vis-a-vis -vis London. But the question of how far parliamentary sovereignty extends is really nowhere codified. The New England Charter does, does not, the Massachusetts Charter does not include the word parliament. So a lot of this is just a sort of minuet around the question of who's in control of, of colonial destiny, London or the colonists. Um, so so uh, that's a great point. I mean, the Sugar Act, the Stamp Act, and eventually the Townsend Act all are, are uh, fought by people like Samuel Adams, who, who and we'll talk about how he uh, used his powers to really push back, um, uh, because of the very simple uh, statement, this is taxation without representation. The people of Boston had no 
say in uh, in any aspect of British politics. So they felt they were being taxed uh, without any voice in the matter. And that, and that was so inherently obvious that even Thomas Hutchinson, whom we can talk about, who's lieutenant governor at this mm-hmm. point, himself uses the words tax, this taxation without representation. His problem, as, he, as he's lieutenant governor, is that he can't do anything about it because by his duty is obviously to defend the law. But he, too, feels that, A, this is a crippling attempt um, to extract funds from a colony that is in no for many colonies, but for, in particular for Massachusetts, which is in no state to produce them, and that B, you really can't tax people who have no say in their government. As Adams will later say that uh, Massachusetts has as much say in this as it does to decide who will be the next emperor of China. And one yeah. of Adams' hilari- hilarious you know, responses to this is, well, the governments are the same both in Great Britain and in the colonies. Why, why shouldn't we be taxing you? <laughs> um so let's talk about Thomas Hutchinson, because I think it it also is a part of the story of how people like Samuel Adams began to uh, uh, chafe against British domination. Thomas Hutchinson, as you point out, started out as lieutenant governor. He was a wealthy uh, 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 Brit, and uh, he could use uh, the power of his wealth and prominence to uh, uh, really... Uh, get the positions he wanted. He eventually became a governor, but again, appointed by the crown, not an independent governor elected by the people of Massachusetts, but but the crown put him in place. And although Samuel Adams, I think it's, I, I'm right in saying, they tried to have a fairly decent relationship for some time. Eventually, Thomas Hutchinson believes that Samuel Adams, and again, we'll talk about why in a few minutes, Thomas Hutchinson ends up believing that uh, Samuel Adams is one of just a very few rabble-rousers who, if the crown could get rid of them, there would be peace again between the British people and the colonists. Yeah, and that, and that in, in a funny way, to start at the end of your question, is an enormous um, advantage to Adams and that he's completely underestimated. Um, underestimated by Hutchinson, who basically writes him off as a desperado and a person who has no income and no position. So, of course, he's attempting to to unsettle a government and underestimated by London, who continually feel that if they could just do away with these, just arrest and imprison these two or three bad eggs, this entire opposition movement would disintegrate overnight. So the underestimating is really key. Thomas Hutchinson and Adams would seem to have the world in common. They're both fifth generation sons of prominent families. They have the same education. But, and they come to these issues from completely different vantage points, um, which, is, which is, as we see today, often the case, obviously. But it's kind of fascinating to watch them part ways. And we know from John Adams, who is indeed Samuel's second cousin, that from the moment Samuel Adams and John Adams meet, which doesn't seem to be long before the Sugar and Stamp Act, it seems to be in the early 1760s, the two Adams men agree right off the bat that Thomas Hutchinson poses, a, as John tells us, a greater threat to American liberties than any other man alive. And he will ultimately become, um, as a kind of British pensioner, as they like to refer to him, as a British um, stand-in, he'll become the villain of the piece. Adams will work very hard to make Thomas Hutchinson the face of tyranny, because it helps to have this figure at home who can sort of stand in for the taskmasters abroad. But, but again, but he was very clever. 
uh, he was able to use rhetoric. He was, a, he was a, you tell us he was a wonderful writer. And um, he began uh, by writing, I think, anonymously under pseudonyms. And he had a way of writing so that uh, people didn't realize just how critically he was attacking people like Thomas Hutchinson. It was much more subtle, yes? The subtlety is really fascinating. First of all, to the pseudonym question, I'm counting at least 30 pseudonyms, and I'm sure I'm missing some. And some of those we know because um, there was a set of Boston newspapers that were collected by a Boston hardware store owner who would annotate his copies, and he very often called out which pseudonyms were Adams's. And other pseudonyms we know because Adams will lift passages from his own letters and various pieces, and other pseudonyms we know because they're identified by the family. So that brings us to about 30 or 32 pseudonyms easily. And those were the style of the day. It was not a, everyone wrote political pieces under pseudonyms. Um, and sometimes Adams is, in fact, given credit for pieces he didn't write. Sometimes there are some very obnoxious pieces, um, which Thomas Hutchinson or the royal governor will send back to London and say, surely this counts as sedition, but in and, and this must be Adams, but in fact, it's not Adams. It's someone else writing. Um, but yes, the pieces are marvelously just this side of sedition, um, so that over and over, the royal governor, Francis Bernard, or later Thomas Hutchinson, will try very hard to make some kind of sedition chart stick and just can't quite because the pieces just fall right. Adams knows very well where the law is and he falls just on the other side of it. So I, I want to talk about uh, the difficulty that you as a researcher and biographer had in uh, writing the biography of Samuel Adams. You mentioned the hardware store owner with all the annotated copies, which was crucial to you because one of the reasons we know very little um, in specific detail about Samuel Adams today is he didn't want us to know about him. He burned uh, many of his papers. He shredded others. You had very little to go on except what his contemporaries said about his life. Well, there is a cache of Samuel Adams' papers at the New York Public Library. So I did have something of the life. We know that there are huge parts that are missing because we know we have this fabulous, although heartbreaking account of John Adams is where, the, where he's sitting in Samuel Adams's rooms in Philadelphia during the Continental Congress, watching Samuel feed his papers to the fire. And when John says to his cousin, don't you think you're perhaps overreacting just a little? Samuel replies that he, he doesn't want their Confederates to be in any way in danger because mm -hmm. of his negligence. So he's really, I mean, this is the mm -hmm. no fingerprints school of, of revolution here. So he needs to be um, destroying these papers. And, and also while he's in Philadelphia, um, a, a well-wisher will stop by his house and cart away a lot of his papers so that they can't be taken by the British officers in town. So again, we don't have those papers either. So yes, we're missing huge pieces of material here. Um, but we do have and what helps to fill in the picture um, in addition to the newspaper accounts and in addition to Adams's existing papers, are these um, this wealth of correspondence which Crown officers are sending back to London, often sputtering about this nuisance Samuel Adams, the most wanted man in America, that Machiavelli of chaos, this nefarious individual, um, uh, and then describing hmm. in vivid detail everything, of course, that Adams never describes for us, because, first of all, he doesn't quite tend to claim credit for things, and secondly, he is, you know, these are dangerous activities when you're fomenting revolution, you don't advertise as much. So we have a much better sense of his activities 
from his enemies than we do, in fact, from him. Yeah, for those who haven't read your book, I, I certainly don't want to create the impression that a lot of what you writ, wrote was made up out of whole cloth. It's, it, it's very well documented. Um, but I think there are certain papers that you wish you could have found. There were are, there are a couple of examples of things that you were like just aching to get a hold of. What's what's an example of that? I guess there would be two two examples there. The book opens with Paul Revere's ride because I think most of us. Mm never stopped to think, where was Paul Revere actually headed that April evening as he galloped frantically west? And the answer is he's heading to warn Samuel Adams and John Hancock that they're about to be arrested or imprisoned. And the very fact that we think that we, we all can see Paul Revere getting on his horse, but we never think, where is he going, made me realize that that was the opening of the book. But I don't, we don't know Adams's reaction to that, uh, to that Paul Revere knocks on the door, he tells them what's happening, slowly Adams and Hancock will retreat. I would so love Adams's reaction to that news. Um, and the other question, obviously, is he's very, we can talk about this, he's very complicit in the Boston Tea Party, which at the time was not a tea party, but the destruction of the East India Company tea. To what level was he, was this his, was this, to what level did he mastermind this operation, or was this really a joint effort? Um, so let's talk a little bit about his style. Um, you tell us, we know about his, his newspaper writing, he himself started two newspapers uh, so that he could um, write, uh, help stir up the uh, anger, the resentment of fellow colonists. Um, but but he, he, was, he was not uh, hesitant to make some story, to let's say at the very least, exaggerate uh, stories. For instance, uh, the Boston Massacre, uh, five people were killed. Adams turned it into a much more significant event than I think it's fair to say it really was. And he kept, he extended it out, you tell us. There was an annual remembrance of the Boston Massacre. Um, he wrote about it continually. Talk about that part of who he was. I think that that's probably the best example of his, his sort of showmanship in terms of the propaganda. Um, I'm not sure that Five people being killed qualifies as a massacre, but he seems convinced of that fact. So he seems to have lent it its name. He then tries very hard for the trial of the of the British soldiers who are who have fired mm -hmm. that evening. He tries very hard to make sure that that trial happens right away while tempers are still flaring in Boston. And in fact, he will fail at that. Thomas Hutchinson will outwit him, and the trial doesn't take place until the fall. Um, it does seem to be Samuel Adams's work that John Adams defends the soldiers. There were reasons for that as well. But after John has successfully defended the soldiers, all, all but two of whom were exonerated, nothing stopped Samuel Adams for, over the course of six months, relitigating the entire trial in the paper. So yeah. that although the soldiers have been found innocent, he's determined that you know they are completely guilty. The jury couldn't have understood what they were doing because the jury was not, did not consist of Bostonians. And he essentially manages to just change the perspective completely on the, on the, on the case. And then he does that annually with something that we've forgotten today, which was a massacre oration, which was this very lacrimose um, de speech delivered on the anniversary of the massacre. And it, it doesn't stop. It, it goes all the way up to the years when we begin to um, it gets consumed by July 4th, essentially. But it is a Boston holiday until then. And it is a moment when the entire town comes together and relives this horrible, tragic evening 
but told always in very sensationalistic, overstated, rather lurid detail. Um, there's always a reference to orphans, but in fact, none of the victims left children. So this, it's, it's very overblown. And it is an occasion, as John Adams tells us, for the most promising young political figure to come to prominence. Samuel Adams clearly recruits these people for the occasion. And the massacre oration is itself published, and as we also are told, is never read in town without a dry eye. So they really teach this, this you know, phantom of British oppression um, very much alive and very much in a very granular way for years after the massacre. When did British troops finally arrive in Boston in some numbers and give Samuel Adams more reason to stir up the anger and resentment of the colonists? That's in October of 1768, when because of a lot of the street violence and the destruction of Thomas Hutchinson's house, the royal governor finally manages to get what he's long hoped for but been afraid to ask for, which is two regiments in Boston. It's a shocking moment. I, mean, I think we forget that Boston was an occupied town well before the revolution. And, for, and from that fall, fall of 1768, Adams, um, in a series of very lurid newspaper pieces with a series of friends, begins to write up these largely, I think entirely, actually invented collisions between citizenry and soldiers, which um, in a kind of genius maneuver are sent to New York where they're published in the paper and then to Philadelphia where they're published in the paper. And only then do they circle back to Boston, by which time nobody even remembers if these things ever really happened in the first place, which they presumably did not. And these are accounts of, you know, women being harassed and muskets in the chest. And it seems as if every Bostonian man, woman, and child has been harassed by British soldiers. And, and Thomas Hutchinson reads these helplessly, um, you know, furious, tearing out his hair, realizing that they are written to incite and are very likely to, worrying that they will end in violence. And of course, by March of 1770, we have the Boston Massacre. Uh, let's take a quick break. Uh, I'm talking to Stacy Schiff, the Pulitzer Prize winning author. Her new book is The Revolutionary, Samuel Adams. We're going to talk with her more after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. My guest on Political Rewind today is Stacey Schiff, whose book, uh, The Revolutionary Samuel Adams, is it's a revelation about the life of a founding father who we know so little about today. Um, Stacy, if you don't mind, do you mind if, if I read just a paragraph of your words? Um, and the reason I'd like to do this is, as I said when we introduced the show, one of the things about you is your writing is always gorgeous. And you mentioned in the uh, last segment that you decided the book needed to start with the ride of Paul Revere, um, very, as you point out, very few of us had any idea that where the British were going was to arrest uh, Samuel Adams and John Hancock. And this is how you describe the beginning of the Paul Revere ride. A glimmer, a gleam, the hurry of hoofs, 
A sturdy, square-jawed man speeds through the night with an urgent message on a borrowed horse. His topcoat flaps behind him, a bright moon hangs overhead. Within days he will know he has participated in some kind of history, though he will hesitate to attach his name to it for decades, and is never to know that his own account will be obliterated, the adrenaline alone enduring, by verse leaving him trapped in tetrometer, a mythic figure eternally jouncing his way toward Lexington. That is such propulsive, vivid writing. I just wanted to share that. Stacy, with our listeners, um, because you brought that alive in such a wonderful way. And because it's so well-written, it really does make us understand that the, Brit the, the British really did think that Samuel Adams and then John Hancock were the real enemies beyond anyone else. And I think if you actually, if you normally thought, okay, who was the most wanted man in America during the Revolution? You'd maybe think George Washington. The word Samuel Adams would never have come to mind for the most part. Um, my problem in, in that paragraph, which you're very kind about, was you're up against a piece of writing that is in, every, in the back of everyone's minds, right? So you know you have to channel it on some level. You can't ignore it because everyone's just the tetra, you know, Longfellow's just kind of on repeat in your brain. So you have to allude to it, but you can't kind of over, you can't let the legend overtake the story. So the question was how to integrate it in some way without violating it. Okay, so let me ask you a writer's question. When you wrote that paragraph, when you, when you imagined the ride, how vividly do you see it in your head as you try to figure out how you're going to put it on paper? That's such a great question. You know, there's always the detail you wish you had that you don't have. We have lots of accounts of the temperature of that evening. We have lots of accounts of the moon of that mm -hmm. evening. We know nothing, despite what we think we know, we know nothing about Paul Revere's horse. And you know, all sorts of myths about Paul Revere's horse have crept into the literature. So a lot of what you're doing is paring down, you know, getting back to the facts and leaving the fiction by the wayside. The beauty for that ride is that years afterward, Paul Revere was encouraged to supply his accounts of it, which he did. And he does it reluctantly. He's a, he, like Adams, is an immensely modest man. And it's from that account that we're able to that we're able to have that kind of description because he's he's very very generous with both the detail and the actual quoted conversations. He tells us of all of his exchanges that evening because he does ride into an ambush and he tells us of his exchanges with the British officers. Um, we should point out, of course, that what started out as a mission to arrest Adams and Hancock uh, turned out to be Lexington Concord. Uh, the first shots fired in the Revolutionary War. The first, the first shots fired and a moment that Samuel Adams and John Hancock miss because they seem to be crouching in, a, in the woods hoping to yeah. avoid arrest at that very yeah. moment. So yes, you have this great irony that this moment that Adams in particular has done so much to choreograph is a moment from which he is missing. And the one thing we know of him is that he will later say that he believes that independence should have been declared the, the next morning. But as soon as shots yeah. were fired, that was it. American independence was on the table. And it's an interesting question because we don't, in fact, know when he determines that independence is, when a rupture with Great Britain is actually necessary. It, it doesn't seem to be as early as some people, I think, have, have theorized. But, but the, one, the, one, the one line of his we have about independence is that the morning after Lexington and Concord should have spelled a rupture for the mother country. I, I think that's an important point, that for quite a while, 
uh, what Adams, you tell us, really hoped was that the British would understand there should be peaceful coexistence between the crown and the colony. There should be a way in which the uh, people of Boston had some independence in overseeing uh, their governmental affairs, their commerce, whatever. He he wasn't the hot-headed revolutionary from the very beginning. He came to it more slowly. There really is this concerted effort to just turn back the clock. And that's what's interesting is that what he's looking at is is going backward to a time when New England felt more in charge of its own destiny. And essentially, Great Britain left it alone because thriving on neglect was essentially the the recipe that everyone was was most um, eager to embrace early on. Um, The level of ignorance bordering on contempt on London's part is really the other astonishing piece of that of that portion of the story in that Great Britain not only misjudges the characters in question, misjudges Samuel Adams and his colleagues, but misjudges the political climate completely and doesn't see how these repeated acts to insist upon parliamentary sovereignty are going to read certainly to a New Englander and how deeply rooted these ideas, this idea of, of redress, if not revolution, have become. And no one is able to tell them as much, even if they're reading the letters from New England, because even Thomas Hutchinson himself, a born New Englander, does not completely understand the conviction, the level of conviction here. There really is a sort of there's an entrenched elite to which Thomas Hutchinson belongs, who are themselves somewhat tone deaf to the determination in town. You uh, in, in talking about how he finally came to the point of understanding that America had to fight for its independence. I think you're referring to Concord in Lexington. You'll tell me if I'm wrong. Events had caught up with him after 11 laborious years. As the curtain rose on what he would term this important, glorious crisis, the opening act of what qualified for some weeks to come still as a civil war, and I love this line, he could just be glimpsed triumphantly exiting stage left. That's that's the best the biographer saying your man is never where you want him to be. You know, the, the same yeah. is true for the same is true for the Boston Tea Party, right? Where it's just a moment where we do know precisely where Samuel Adams and John Hancock were, because they make a very point of conspicuously remaining behind at the Old South Meeting House, where um, they had been trying laboriously to salvage the tea or to salvage the situation, while the rest of Boston um, troops off to the wharf to watch chests of tea be thrown overboard and the tea destroyed. And clearly there is a pointed effort um, to keep the ringleaders, to keep Samuel Adams and Hancock and Thomas Young and the other ringleaders as far from the action as possible so that, it, again, there are no fingerprints on this activity. Um, so I'd like to talk just for a couple of minutes. The Boston Tea Party episode, of course, really escalates the conflict with uh, uh, Great Britain and moves them toward a war, but if but you don't mind, I'd really like. I think you you establish some really interesting relationships in the book. So John Adams, second cousin, certainly one of the best known of the founding fathers. But, but it, you tell us that when John Adams goes to what France, uh, goes to Europe, uh, everybody thinks he's Samuel Adams. <laughs> he says, "No, no, no, that's another Adams. It's not me." That's how famous Samuel Adams was at the time. That people didn't know John Adams, who became one of the best known of all the founding fathers. It's a complete reversal. I mean, the other the other piece of that that's funny is that John Adams is really the country mouse. He grows up in this farmer's cottage in Braintree, where Samuel Adams grows up in a much more sophisticated milieu in Boston. 
But yes, even when Thomas Hutchinson finally leaves America after the destruction of the tea, um, he gets to London in early 1774. He's carted off, he's whisked off immediately to see King George. And, and he has to explain as well that there's not one but two Adam's men. Um, and that the one who's really the troublesome creature, the, 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 the chief instigator here, the person, as he says, who was the first um, to make a bid for independence is Samuel Adams, not John. So even at the time, the two are tangled oh. up together, but, but Samuel is always the more, um, the, 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 he's the mentor to John and he's much more eminent. Uh, the relationship between Samuel Adams and John Hancock is interesting as well. Uh, you write that Adams is always a little bit put off by Hancock's sort of foppish de- dress. He's always uh, dressed in fi- finery, and uh, Adams finds that a little distressing. Uh, Hutchinson uh, says that he believes that uh, Samuel Adams played uh, Satan to Hutchinson's, I mean, to uh, uh, Hancock's Eve, that it was Samuel Adams who recognized he needed uh, Hancock's wealth and prominence uh, uh, on his side, right? John Hancock is a is an interesting character in the sense that he's really the sort of polar opposite of Samuel Adams. They're really the the odd couple of American history in many ways. And and Adams, who's a great recruiter of talent, and as his contemporaries say, would go should go down in history for no other reason than for, for the number of people he recruits to the cause. Early on, figures out that. John Hancock would thrive on the applause which political office is going to afford him, and that John Adams, John Hancock's immense fortune is going to be of tremendous use to the opposition party. So he recruits Hancock and sees that he's elected to the Massachusetts House of Representatives. But the relationship is an uneasy one, and it proceeds by fits and starts. Um, there are a couple of periods where the two do not are off speaking terms. At one point, um, just after the Boston Massacre, Hancock will tell Hutchinson that he hopes never to see or speak to Samuel Adams ever again, and there will be a couple of years there where they don't. And um, then, of course, they're together in the, in the ditch at Lexington and Concord, but then years later, they will come to blows um, in, in Congress as well. And I think John Hancock will probably do more than any other person to help blacken Samuel Adams's reputation back in Boston. It's a real contrast between of styles, one of them a sort of foppish pseudo-aristocrat and the other one a very shabbily dressed man of ideas. Uh, yeah, I couldn't help, as I read your description of the way Hancock dressed, of course, immediately picture his signature on the Declaration of Independence, which is a perfect personification of who he was as an individual. Large, flamboyant, you know, bigger than everyone else's. Exactly. Stylish and, and exactly the consuming the entire page. Yeah. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show. Why, though, is what we're going to talk about next. Was Samuel Adams forgotten over the period of history following the revolution? That is a fascinating story as well. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment. My special guest on today's Political Rewind is uh, Stacey Schiff. By the way, I apologize if I sound hoarse. I am, uh, but I'm going to get through the show. The book is The Revolutionary, Samuel Adams. And by the way, if listening to the show, you realize you really want to read it, which I highly recommend, uh, wherever you are in the state or beyond, if you can find it at an independent bookstore, we always try to suggest you buy your books that way. Stacey Schiff, I think it was in around 1817 or so that John Trumbull was commissioned 
to paint a larger-than-life or almost larger-than-life painting of the introduction, not the signing, there are people who confuse it, of the introduction of the, a draft of the Declaration of Independence. And when it's finally unveiled in 1818 or 1819, you probably know the exact time frame, people are stunned that Samuel Adams is sort of hidden in the background. And that's kind of representative of what by this time, years after the revolution and America's independence, has happened to him, yes? He's, he's sort of hiding behind Richard Henry Lee. And the question is, and by the way, Trumbull had painted a lot of these people from life. So part of the question is, if you're going to go to the trouble of painting all of these people from life, you know, why, why did you wedge poor Samuel Adams into this you know, little, he's in the shadows, to which, of course, his detractors would respond, but he preferred to subsist in the shadows. That's why he's in the shadows. But yes, he's very much kind of painted out of the picture, both figuratively and literally afterward. And, and, and one of the things that, um, and you'll explain this in, in better words than I have, is that once the revolution was over, uh, the work, kind of dirty work in some ways, the, uh, uh, the way in which Samuel Adams went about turning uh, the, the uh, colonists against the crown, people sort of wanted to put behind them. They preferred the image of a George Washington, great horseman, incredible leader of the country. They wanted the heroic figure. They didn't want the guy who uh, worked quietly behind the scenes, uh, uh, essentially uh, applauding sedition. I think, I think that's a large piece of it. I think you want the glorious words of Thomas Jefferson and the glorious exploits of George Washington. You don't want the messy, anarchic, rough-and-tumble street theater of those, of those early years, the boycotts and the pickets and the extra-legal assemblies, all the sort of civil resistance that led to the revolution. I mean, those are the years that John Adams refers to as the real revolution, because it's the revolution in thinking. And it's much less sexy than was the revolution that followed. And you want to clean up, I think, the, the image of those years. You want to sanitize it. And when you do that, I think Adams gets thrown out with that piece of the picture. When, when, you, turn, when you turn destruction of, of private property um, into a tea, a tea party, you need to get rid of somebody like Samuel Adams. And, and so that's a large piece of it. John Adams will ask Samuel to collect his papers. And he'll essentially say, no one will be able to understand the revolution if you don't collect your decades of writing. And Samuel Adams never does it. And I think that would have helped. He, he somewhat writes himself out of the story by not, write, not pulling together his papers. He doesn't leave a memoir. He doesn't write as assiduously as did, as did John about the past. Um, but there's also just a, a lack of vanity there with him, which I find highly appealing. There's not, a, there's not a great calling attention to his role. John Adams is forever afterward sort of yeah. vying for attention, figuring out who should get credit, worrying that Franklin and Jefferson are going to get all the credit and not him, John Adams. But Samuel Adams never engages in any of that. He feels that this is a very private um, quest that he was on. There's no need really to call attention to himself. There's a real modesty there. And, you know, and also there's, a, there's somewhat of a, of a falling out with the future of America. He really is, he was really intent on a restoring of, old, of an old-fashioned set of principles of ancient purity of manners, as he calls it. And the country is just rocketing forward to this very commercial future out of which, in which he has no place. That's really a fascinating thing to say. He was still essentially what you call a conservative with traditional values at a time when America was moving to a progressive 
uh, future. I hadn't even thought of it that way. That's really interesting, Stacey. Very much so, and very much intent, very much out of step with the Federalists in that respect as well, in the sense that he is a more, he's a somewhat more parochial thinker. He believes in the New England way, and he's not entirely going willing to sign on with Federalist principles, which earns him additional enemies, by the way, in addition to those that John Hancock has cultivated for him. Okay, so um, as we talk about his modesty, his uh, desire to uh, remain somewhat in the background, not worrying about his legacy, you also tell us in the book that he was always shabbily dressed. And I do think that it's really wonderful to think about what happened when he was going off to the Continental Congress. And by the way, I think before we even get there, we should point out, um, you talked earlier about the fact that Adams wrote in the aftermath of the Boston Massacre, these articles that were sent to New York and then found their way to other uh, colonies before they got back to Boston. I mean, in some ways, he then plays a huge role um, in bringing along the colonists in other uh, colonies to thinking about uh, revolution, because Boston has been the center of it all for so long. I think that's the, the great and probably most underrated contribution here. Yes, the um, the pulling of ideas, uh, of ambient ideas out of the air and crystallizing them on the page is an enormous contribution, but it's Adams who from the very start is looking at the colonies as a whole and who is intent, perhaps not on revolution for many years, but always on unity and realizes that the colonies really need to stand together. And it's with his committees of correspondence, which um, sound so dreary, but are actually so effective, that he finally manages to make that happen by essentially uniting all the towns of New England initially, and then ultimately the colonies themselves. The question always being, of course, how does the opposition effort take off with such ferocity and with such speed after the Boston Port Act, after Boston's port is shut yeah. as punishment for the, for the destruction of the tea. And the answer is because of Samuel Adams's committees of correspondence, for him having bound together mm -hmm. the colonies in this way that almost defies the practicalities of the day when it was really so hard to get news from one place to another. What you see is a chorus of very similar language um, after the Boston Tea Party, after the Boston Port Act, which you would not have seen earlier. So, um just a little kind of fun side note, here he goes off to the Continental Congress, which he is in many ways responsible for bringing together, and they don't want him to go off, his friends, in his shabby clothes. What do they do? So we have, the, we have this in two different accounts, which means I'm willing to trust what's going to sound like a sort of fairy tale story. Um, one night at dinner, the Adams, Adams, his wife and daughter, are interrupted by the call of a tailor who will not tell him, them who has dispatched him, but who is there to take Samuel Adams's measure. And shortly after the tailor leaves, arrives a wig maker and a boot maker, and you know a quick succession of benefactors of, of uh, providers. And lo and behold, what should arrive on Adams' doorstep a short time later? But a chest include a chest which um, has inside it an entirely new wardrobe for Samuel Adams, because obviously it is um, no one in in the Massachusetts Bay Colony wants him to go off representing them in his usual um, shabby attire. And so they have arranged for him to have this brand new, this sparkling new wardrobe with which to journey to, to Philadelphia. From John Adams, we know there's it's a great deal of... Go ahead. No, no, please finish. Uh, from John Adams, we know there's a great deal of anxiety about being, about 
playing on this bigger stage. Suddenly they're, they're national figures. They're not just provincial figures. And, and John Adams is worried that he's not going to be sophisticated enough or learned enough. We have no note of that kind of anxiety on Samuel's part, but we do know that he goes off in this splendid new wardrobe. It's a it's just a little uh, side highlight, but but it is fascinating because once again it tells us here is a very modest man, who, and yet he was um, in many ways the leader of the American Revolution. Um, I, I want to with we just have a couple minutes left, but at the very beginning of your book, um, you tell us that Adams banked on the sage del- deliberations of a band of hardworking farmers reasoning their way toward rebellion. That was how democracy worked. Um, And you go on to tell us uh, that he believed in the goodwill of the people to elect leaders of high morals and principles. Now, you can't possibly have written that and put it high up in your book without thinking of where we're at as a country today. Well, you know, he, he basically believed democracy rested on two pillars, virtue, which were some sort of moral fiber, and education. And he was fierce about education for both men and women. He believed strongly in, in access, uniform access to education across the board. But his feeling being that to have a villainous ruler imposed on you um, was a misfortune, but that to elect him yourself was a disgrace. And that's really where the educated piece came in, is that you would cast, you would cast your vote wisely, um, if you understood the politics of your day. Um, Stacey Schiff, we really are uh, just about out of time. I Again, I think your book, uh, The Revolutionary, Samuel Adams, is thrilling. And it really does remind us of what an extraordinary band of leaders the Founding Fathers were. The, the story of America is wonderful in almost any way you look at it, isn't it? Incredibly, incredibly inspiriting. Yes. Well, Stacy, thank you uh, so much. I've really enjoyed uh, having you uh, here today. Uh, take care and uh, stay you, healthy. You too, Bill. Even with a hoarse voice, you're marvelous. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, well, that's nice of you. Um, we are just about out of time. Um, I wanted you to know that, uh, give you just a little heads up. We're going to uh, do shows through live shows through Thursday. Friday, we're going to do my annual reading of Truman Capote's A Christmas Memory, which we've done every year for nine years, and uh, which uh, people, it's a beautiful, beautiful story if you haven't heard it. And, and at the end of that show, uh, my wife, the writer, Ginny Schaefer, uh, does her story, uh, Christmas Tree Envy, about being a five-year-old girl who uh, wishes Despite the fact she's Jewish, she could have a Christmas tree. That's Friday. And then throughout next week, we're going to bring you the best of our shows over the past eight years, really. Some are political rewinds, some from the show Two-Way Street. We'll be talking to the great singer-songwriter Jimmy Webb. We'll be talking to the former president of CNN and LBJ advisor uh, Tom Johnson and others. So uh, that's all coming up on Political Rewind, but we will be back with a brand new show live uh, tomorrow. Until then, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care and stay healthy, everybody.